All right. Good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, you can turn in your Bible to Psalm 16. While you get there, let me give you a little preview of where we're headed over the next uh, little more than a month or so. Starting next week, we're going to be in the book of Ruth for about five weeks. And I'm really excited about it. It's this awesome story of God's faithfulness. And in it, we're going to see God take uh, a widow named Naomi. And over time, he's going to bring healing and hope to her that is so powerful. Uh, She became uh, just really wounded and bitter when she lost not only her husband, but she lost her sons as well. And she's so bitter, in fact, in that pain that she renames herself Bitter. It's the new name that she gives herself. Um, I'll tell you what, then in her bitterness, she returned home to Bethlehem. And anytime you see Bethlehem in the Old Testament, like alarm bells start going off. Against Naomi's wishes, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. And little does Naomi know, this daughter-in-law who is an unwelcomed companion ends up becoming the very channel through which God is going to pour out redemption onto Naomi. And we get to watch We get to watch this historical narrative where Naomi goes from empty and bitter to actually holding a legacy of hope for the whole world in her very hands. Uh, Y'all, the book of Ruth that we're going to be in those five weeks, it is a story of hope for hurting people. And I say that because it might be you that God is going to meet in your bitterness and emptiness and you need this incredible story, this incredible narrative uh, that we get from history in the time of the judges. God gives us this thing um, from Israel's history. It's so good. And y'all, maybe it's not for you though. Maybe it's for a friend or a family member or a coworker who you know is going through a place of hurt, of bitterness right now. Y'all, we are wired up for story, and the book of Ruth is this five-week powerful story about hope that God gives. So let me tell you to plan on inviting some people to hear about the hope that God gives. Invite a friend to read the book of Ruth with you and maybe listen along to these sermons and use them as a, a starting off point. Maybe they come and they sit and they worship alongside of you, but use that as a starting off point to go and tell them about the hope that God gives. Uh, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. And maybe it's time for your friend, your teammate, your classmate, whoever, to finally get to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's going to be an incredible five weeks that we're in that book. Uh, This week, with that said, I want to do something a little different from our normal sermon rhythm. Uh, Normally, we're going to do just like what I talked about with the book of Ruth, or like what we've been in. We take about uh, several weeks and we walk through a book of the Bible together. Uh, But I felt like I needed to do something a little bit different this week. Um, I wanted to share a sermon with you that just kind of came out of my time uh, in the morning in God's Word. Uh, Most of the time, that time that I spend each morning in God's Word, just like for you, that time's kind of just for me to fill me up, lead me to worship. That's my time with God, and most of what happens there is for, for me, right? But sometimes the Lord shows me something that I think is for all of us, just as the pastor of your church. I feel that. And this year, I'm trying to grow and just really thinking well on God's Word and meditating on God's Word. And when I say meditating, I don't mean like the Eastern religion empty your mind. I mean instead allow God's Word to really fill my mind and think well on all of it. Um, And in doing so, I'm reading one psalm a week with uh, some other members of Mercy Church. And a couple weeks ago, we're in Psalm 16. 
actually preached Psalm 16 about two and a half years ago. But as I read it, it was so fresh and renewing to me. And I felt like it offers a fresh word from God uh, here to us, to our church. And even as I looked up my sermon from a couple years ago, I was like, yeah, I needed that. And so there's some of that that is refreshed and some of that is fresh as I'm coming to you today. Uh, And I say that coming off of Hebrews 12 and three weeks that we had in there. Uh, Y'all, the Psalms, what it does is it actually gives us language for walking and talking with God. Actually lets us see things because my big concern uh, and what I think the Psalms helps us to do is the Psalms keeps us from just learning things about God. Because you could come to church and you could learn a lot of things about God, but we're not here to just know about God. We're here to know God. That's why we exist is to actually know him. And when we stop seeing God as a subject matter and seeing him as a person to know, that's when he starts to wake us up spiritually. That's when things start to really happen. I want you to know God and the Psalms give us words that we can actually pray back to God and begin talking to him and getting to know him. So we're just going to walk through it. Hopefully by the time we're done, um, I hope you feel like this is something you can do at home. Just walk through a psalm. Let it be your words back to God as you talk with him and you can meet with him. And the reason we're in Psalm 16 is in order for us to know the one true God, we have to understand something deeply true about ourselves. What Psalm 16 is going to put before us today is that all of us as humans, this is just how God has wired it up, we all have gods that we submit ourselves to. So the decision is not whether or not we are going to serve a God, but the decision before each one of us is which God will we serve. That is true for all of us. To be human is to be a worshiper. We all worship something. Now, if you're a Christian, that makes a little bit of sense. If you're not a Christian, that's a little bit offensive. <laughs> I've just told you that you are playing a game that you didn't know you even signed up for, but you're in it. But for you, I just, I'd encourage you to, I mean, you already made the work of being here or listening in is just to hear it out and see what Christianity has for you. And if you are a Christian, my challenge to you is going to be to see if your worship that you thought was going to the one true God might actually have been going somewhere else. My hope for you today, y'all, I really do. I believe most of our problems and frustrations, anxieties and fears are the result of directing worship onto counterfeit gods. Underneath the surface of things like conflicts, confusion, money problems, every single one of those comes back ultimately to a worship problem where we've taken what we've said before is something good from God, but we put it in the place of God and it's become a bad thing. Always a bad thing. So today we're going to listen as King David shares his process of working through counterfeit gods that weren't bringing him joy, that were coming up empty, and working through replacing his worship, redirecting his worship from there back to the one true God. That's what we're going today in Psalm 16. And you know what? As a way to just um, let us hear it, because the psalm is so, um, it's, just, it's a poetry, it's like a song lyric, it's best if it's heard together. I want to actually read the whole thing over you. And for your sake, uh, both for a heart posture and a maybe a a focus posture. I want to ask you to stand while I read God's word. That's whether you're at home watching or here at Providence Road. If you'll stand and listen as I read it, it'll be on the screens as well. Actually, I don't know if it'll be on the screens. I just surprised them with that. So um, I'll read it over you and it'll be okay. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good 
besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I'll bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And therefore, oh, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Father, would you bless our time considering the great hope of who you are and who you have said we are. As we open your word and look through it this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. All right. Well, with the full psalm now in front of you, we're just going to walk through it and reflect on what God has for us in it, starting there in verses 1 and 2. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. Right out of the gate, you see David is describing a decision he's made. I'm taking refuge in you. This whole psalm is David expressing that process of choosing God. It is an active choice, all right? It is an active thing that even someone who is closer to God than anybody else is going to say at one point, a man after God's own heart is still actively taking that decision today to do. And refuge, refuge means what you think it means. It's a hiding place for those in trouble. You come in and you take shelter there. Protect me, God. Before I take refuge in you. And one of the things that I found myself reflecting on um, as I was studying this is sometimes I'm yelling, protect me, God, while refusing to take refuge in him. Does that make sense? Like, God, I want, please help me, please help me, please help me. And God's like, okay, well, here's the things that I've set up for you in order for you to feel that sense of comfort, security, and everything else. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want that. I want to do everything my way, but protect me. It's like, protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. And I want to call us together to take refuge, to run towards him. That's one of the big things you'll see in here. And he says, I have nothing good besides you. And that, I know, can seem like hyperbole, but it's actually the result of what comes when you know God for a while. I mean, it sounds extreme. David is king. He has got some good things going on. The only thing you have good in your life is God. It seems so silly. Again, you could write it off as exaggeration, poetic overspeak. Like if you've ever had the good fortune of having Courtney Shelton, my wife, having her chocolate chest pie. All right, listen, that thing is like a flavor texture masterpiece, okay? And there may have been a time or two where I've just leaned down and whispered in the moment, I have nothing good besides you. You are, you know, that, that's... 
momentary bliss in those moments, right? That's all it is. But David, however, that's, of course, overspeak, exaggeration, caught up in the moment. That's not David. What David's actually doing is providing the most honest and true perspective on what it means to know God. Jesus says the same thing over in Luke 14. He says this thing that sounds absurd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. What? Now, Jesus isn't saying hate like be an enemy of. That'd be counter to his teaching in other places. He's saying the one who loves God will get to a place where in comparison to your love for God, your feelings toward anything else would be like hate. That's what happens the more you get to know God. David had experienced God's faithfulness while protecting sheep in the field. Through close friendships with Jonathan, through that time that he killed Goliath, through his ascent to the throne, he knows God and he knows that in comparison, nothing else should even be called good. And that right there is the first thing we need to know about what we're going to call We're going to unearth some counterfeit gods over the course of our time this morning. But the first thing we need to know is nothing is good when compared to God. Nothing's good when compared to God. This is big because what happens so often is this wonderful God gives us good things. James 1 says, every good gift comes from God. And in fact, I think maybe a great exercise for us right now is to recount the goodness of God, some of us are a little bit starved for it, and we're wondering, is he still good? He is good. He has given us so every good thing that we've ever had in our lives, James 1 says, is a good gift from a good father. He is good, and he gives good gifts, and when we keep a gift in its place as a gift from God, yes, it's good, but what we tend to do over time is we take that gift And we sort of put it in the place of the gift giver and we start to find our happiness, joy, contentment in the gift instead of the gift giver. And when that thing, whatever it is that God has given, moves in our hearts from being a gift to being a competitor with God, that's when it becomes an idol. I'll show you in a second more about how we do it. But David is showing right now how we prevent ourselves from traveling down that road. His statement of faith is to say God is so good that nothing, in comparison to him, nothing else is good, period. It might be that the best is one of the things I've been doing this week. I have nothing good besides you, God. I'm going to start my day telling God that, which is actually telling, also telling Spence that, right? I have nothing. So whatever comes, if it's an awesome day, best day ever, I have nothing good besides you. My hope is not going to be in what you give me. It's going to be in you. It's been big for me this week. And then he goes on, verse 3. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. I love uh, this verse. He's talking about others who choose God the same way he has. His delight is in them because there is a deep common bond that he shares with them. A massive blessing in your life. I would even say a necessary gift that God does give to you in your pursuit of knowing God are the people of God. In fact, God has wired you up so that you experience his character 
through other believers. You don't get to experience all of him on your own. You have to experience all of him through the way he works in other people. I see this. Um, I told you all this a couple years ago, and I was thinking back on it. I was like, this is one of the most truest things ever. A um, couple years ago, um, I and my four kids and my wife were locked out of our car after soccer practice. And that was because I locked my keys in the car. All right, I take full ownership. I did it. It was a bonehead move kind of thing. Um, and then out of nowhere, Craig Bender calls me. I texted a couple of people that were not Craig, but then Craig Bender, who's a member of our church, a deacon in our church, he calls me. I love this guy. And he just says, hey, man, where's your van? And I was like, what? <laughs> where's it? It's in the YMCA parking lot, man. Um, where's your van? You know, it was a strange kind of <laughs> strange thing. But you know what? This is Craig. See, Craig Bender has a certain set of skills, all right? I decided not to ask where he got these skills, but once Craig got there, he came with some tools that I don't know where you buy them. I don't know where you get these tools, but he had them, and very shortly after he arrived, a couple of things that he did, we, we did some stuff, and boom, that car was unlocked, all right? I was like, man, this is faithfulness right here, the faithfulness of a friend and friends who carjack together stay together. That's what I can kind of see with me and Craig. We're tight, have been ever since. Um, but what I see in that actually is, man, he just dropped everything, didn't even wait on permission, Dropped, dropped everything to come and help somebody in need. Super faithful. And that is, if you know Craig Bender, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because that's him all the time. Super faithful. And in doing so, he's pointing me back to the faithfulness of God. And it's a joy to be around him because I'm seeing the faithfulness of God through him. So I delight in my friendship with him because he points me back to God. See, God's, keep, God's people keep us from counterfeit gods by pointing us to the one true God. You catch that? They keep us from wanting those other things and putting those things in the place of God because they help point us back to God. David delights in them because he experiences the God who's working through them. You want to know God, God says? Get to know my son, get to know my word, and get to know my people. See, we don't, we don't just tell you to get into a community group around here so that our community group program or something will work. In fact, it's not even a program, all right? We do it because your heart is a factory for creating counterfeit gods, and God's people are the ones who come in and say, no, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. You've turned that good thing into a God thing. That's a bad thing. Let me redirect you away from that back to worshiping the one true God. Because, verse 4, here's why. If they don't, and if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And let me, let me pause right here and say this. Until about verse, uh, verse 4 is probably the, the like lowest point of this psalm. Okay, So I'm starting, coming at you with, hey, here's the problem with counterfeit gods, and we're going to go low, and we're going to talk about these counterfeit gods. And then David's going to lead us to a place of worship. It's this incredible, like, bookend of worship on the front, worship on the back, so, uh, verse 1 and verse 11. And in the middle is, man, here's, here's what you got to watch out for. Because I don't want you to miss God. I don't want you to miss him. We said for three weeks in Hebrews 12, don't miss him. And if you do, you give yourself to other gods, counterfeit gods. Here's what will happen. And so we got to see it, all right? Here's what will happen. The sorrows of those who take another god for themselves... They will multiply. They'll multiply. So David says, I will not pour out their drink offerings. I will not worship them, their drink offerings of blood. I will not speak their names with my lips. 
And the reason I stop here is to try and pastor you because I have this, this thing that has made me grieve, especially the past uh, year, is when I watch you take another God for yourself. And I know you can't see at the moment how destructive it's going to be for you, how sorrow multiplying it is going to be for you. Rarely do you know something is a God when you first take it. Otherwise, you wouldn't. All right, and I wouldn't. We wouldn't do that. And I know you might read this and think, take another God. Okay, I'll make sure I don't go into another world religion. Got it. And what we'll do is we'll use that. We'll kind of write that off that way. Like, I'm not going to worship another God. And we'll write that off and we'll push aside the reality that our heart is this little God factory. Let me tell you what a counterfeit God is. A counterfeit God is anything more important to you than God. That's all it is, okay? That worship another God, your sorrows will multiply. Another God, which I'm going to call a counterfeit God, is anything more important to you than God. That definition, by the way, is from uh, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, that I would highly encourage you. i got a couple questions I'm going to ask you in here that come from there and would encourage you if you're like, man, I do need to do some work on what God is revealing. It's a great resource that will help you out. It's the thing or things that you have made so central to your life, these counterfeit gods, that if you should lose it, man, you would be totally disoriented. And your life would feel like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life now. It'd feel hardly worth living. Whatever you look at and say down in your heart of hearts, as long as I have that, I'm good. My life has meaning. I know I'll be secure. I got value. We can do that with anything. That's the tough part here. We can do that with anything. So let me give you three questions to ask you to help you sort of uproot the idols of your heart. All right. We'll ask these three questions, and then we'll move into the joys of worshiping the one true God. But this is how you discover your idols, massively important for your walk with God. And it's an ongoing process. This is not a one time and we're done. This is Spence this week, and it will be ongoing. The first question I'm asking you is, what do you love? You want to discover what your idols are? What do you love? One of the ways God talks about his um, relationship to us is as our spiritual spouse, He is the groom where the church is his bride. He should be our one true spouse. But when we desire and delight in other things more than God, God calls that, the Bible calls that in multiple places, adultery. Idols will capture your imagination. You can probably locate them. When I say, what do you love? What do you daydream about? What do you hope for? What makes you feel loved and feel significant? For example, a lot of people love love. We love love, love romance. It's, it's a, a major part of our life. It's actually a good gift, by the way, that God gives. We're going to spend all the fall in the book of uh, Song of Solomon, and we're going to talk about that this fall, the great gift of God that he gives in romance, all right? But we can easily make this thing into a counterfeit God. Like there's this old um, song I used to hear when my mom was driving around in the minivan, taking us to soccer practice, like the minivan with the wood paneling. Like we're talking old school minivan, right? You know what I'm talking about? And there's a song that was, you're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody loves you, which it had a nice melody, a huge lie, right? But our whole culture has bought it. So we maintain that one day we'll find our soulmate. And when we find that person, what are we going to do? 
We're going to unload all of our deepest needs for significance and purpose and fulfillment and security onto them. Nobody can live up to that. Nobody can handle that. So what happens? You get into that relationship and your sorrows multiply. Because you didn't realize it, but you made them your God. The dating scene is filled with the God of love. Even among Christians, romantic love is powerful and on its own. It's a good thing that God has provided, but we make a God out of it. In a couple of ways. Sometimes we make a God out of it because we must have it. Right? So somebody always needs to be dating or looking for the one, and, and your actions and your thoughts are all controlled by future romantic love. But others avoid romantic love entirely out of bitterness or anger or fear. You're actually just as controlled by its power. Right? The person who's completely shut off to romantic love, you might miss out on a wonderful spouse that may God might bring along. But the person who must have love will always rush into a relationship with the wrong person. To be too afraid of love or too enamored by it. Again, just for one example, it is assumed a God-like power that makes a counterfeit God. What do you love? Here's another one. I feel like this goes even deeper. What do you trust? You want to discover your idols? What do you trust? Another way the Bible talks about God is like David does, as our refuge, our savior and security. But idols will slip into that spot, these things God gives, and they'll start to demand our trust. They become the ones in charge of our sense of peace and security. The way you figure out these is to, what do you trust, is to start thinking about your, let me say it this way, what are your nightmares? What are the things that you fear losing the most? And if you lost them, your life would crumble. Obvious example is money. Right? For me, a long time, for a long, long time, I would check my bank account at least six or seven times a day. Nothing was changing in there. Right? Just go in. Yep. Same. Okay. Good. Log out. Log back in. Hour later. All still there. Okay. Good. Back out. Right? There was nothing. Nothing was changing, but I was so like, this was my spot of security. And then seminary broke me of that. Right? Because no longer was anything going to be going in there. Right? It was just, that was pretty static and done. Right? This is part of seminary. But we do that. Right? Savers make, um, make an idol out of money by checking it, seeing how much we can grow it. Spenders make idols out of money by getting stuff with that money that makes us feel good about ourselves, better clothes, house, whatever. And usually they end up marrying each other so that you can have conflict and everything else. Right? <laughs> we do it, y'all. We do it. Where are you putting your trust? Let me, let me speak to, yeah, all right. Let me speak to another one. Where are you putting your trust? Um, I think one of the hardest things over the past year as your pastor has been to watch the idol of political ideology get smoked out and see how much we Christians are putting our trust in our political ideologies. And convictions. And I say that after spending a lot of time over the past year praying for you, praying for myself, and a lot of time talking with other pastors who are grieving because what's being realized is that there's a lot of Christians, and I'm including us in this church, who are discipled more by Hannity and Maddow than they are by Jesus Christ. And so what's happening is you're standing in your arena, whatever your political lines and political camp is, and you're looking with a skeptical eye towards the people of God. Instead of 
standing with your brothers and sisters in Christ and looking with a skeptical eye toward your political ideology. And the evidence of that is when we try and sit. Now, let me, let me say something right now. Some of you have faithfully oh, and beautifully come with God's word open and said to me and other pastors in our church, I'm trying to figure this out. Because, y'all, it's been hard. There have been at least three things that have been very difficult to figure out how do we apply God's word. We stand under its authority and apply his word to us and try and walk through. And you guys have faithfully done that. And we have had conversations with the Bible open. And you are the epitome, the actual realization of verse 2 in here. My delight, my delight as the pastor of your church is in you because of you trying to help us walk together in unity. But I've watched others have a skeptical eye towards God's word if it doesn't fit with a political camp. And we are not, I promise you, trying to be a moderate church on a political spectrum. No, we do not exist on that spectrum. We are servants. We are not like uh, voters first. We are servants of the one true God and the lamb who was slain. And we exist to declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who we are. And there, when you're in over here and you're the party of the donkey or the elephant, which I love because even there's silly looking animals, like that should even help you, right? Like when you're in there, have your joys multiplied? No, sorrows have multiplied. Especially when all you're listening to is people who get paid to incite your anger. But what multiplies? Joy multiplies. So my challenge to you, my conviction out of time in this word and honestly nervousness, but feeling like this has to be said and it's said in May because there's like no election this weekend, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, so we're safe a little bit and our temperature's a little bit down. It's to be discipled more by God's word. Spend more time in God's word with God's people than you do with any other ideology. All right? All right, let me find where I am. All right. Um, the last one there in this, what are your idols, is what do you obey? What do you love? What do you trust? What do you obey? Uh, a big one I see in that is success. You know, do you let that drive you? That becomes your master. You need to be known as the youngest and brightest and most talented in your field. I mean, we train it into our kids. Uh, this was a big one in the Shelton household. My dad never once let me win anything ever, Right? I'd be like, Dad, just have mercy on me. You know, we're a game of 21. I'm like, Dad, just have a little mercy. He's like, son, Jesus gives mercy. I give lessons. And that was like his <laughs> way of discipling me. I'm like, uh, it's, it's ingrained, you know. And my kids are receiving the same, same lessons, of course. Uh, but, you know, if you're in this, like, do whatever it takes to win, do whatever it takes to succeed, right, has that become your God? I mean, how many athlete testimonies do we have to hear that if football, tennis, basketball, whatever's taken away, they'd have no identity? That the same is true for all of us when we let success be our God. They're just actually the ones who are able to articulate it, understand their hearts enough. Sorrows will multiply. Now, now we move and we look at David. You know, I can always, the reason I spend so much time there in those is because I can almost always tie major breakthroughs in my life and in the lives of others to times where they finally called out the false gods that were rooted down deeper than they realized. They called them out and said, that is what they are. 
and chose to shift worship back onto God. It was disorienting, uncomfortable, and then joy multiplied. That's why I spend time there. Leads to the rest of our psalm. Verse 5, Lord, you are my portion. Now he's going to tell us where he's going. He's shifting his worship. You are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future, the greatest source of anxiety, the future. Fear of what will happen. False gods reveal themselves in your anxiety. But when you put your hope in the one true God, he says, you hold my future. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Think about what this word inheritance means for us, church. For us, it's not, uh, for this, the whole, the boundary lines, he's talking about the inheritance of land. All right, so if you were to get land, that's that boundary line around what future land that you would get. Our inheritance is God himself. You need more on this? We spent all of last week talking about our inheritance. In Christ, we're purchased by God. He pays for our sin, adopts us as his children into his kingdom, puts the label son, daughter on us. And he says, I'm going to give you my presence with you now for every breath you'll breathe until you stop breathing. And that's in the form of the Holy Spirit. And then right after that last breath, you will live with me in eternity. No other God can say that. And the more we fix our eyes on, on eternity and the inheritance that awaits us, the more these idols will reveal themselves for how shallow and empty they are. That's why you hear us say uh, that the best thing for you in your walk with God is not just turning away from false gods. It's running to the one true God right? Not just seeing the worthlessness of false gods, but seeing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse seven, I'll bless the Lord who counsels me even at night when my thoughts trouble me. Who spoke to me this week. Anybody else ever had their thoughts trouble them at night? Trouble going to sleep because your mind is racing. That's me waking up in the middle of the night because of anxieties, fears, decisions, conflict, troubling you. David says, in that moment right there, I'm a blessed Lord. I'm a bl-, which means in the moment where fear wants to reign, I'm going to posture myself, Lord, my life is yours. You prepare a place for me in the presence of my enemies. Surely, though, I don't know how, I don't see how, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely in all my ways, I will acknowledge him and he will make my paths straight. And at night, all alone, just you and your thoughts, when you think you're all alone, say, no, 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 you're not alone. God is with you. He's there. And you have the option, as difficult as it is in those moments, to surrender your, even your thoughts to the Lord. And he will replace them with his truth. If you've been spending your time in it, he'll draw it to you. And no idol can hold its grip over you when you start attacking it with God's truth. Leads right to verse 8. I always let the Lord guide me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken because you're a part of a kingdom, Hebrews 12 is going to say, that cannot be shaken. He's talking about victory over these idols, over whatever might come. He's saying, no, no, the Lord is with me. He's my advocate. And when my worship, my security, my love, trust, obedience is set on him, I cannot be shaken. Christian, let me remind you. One day the Lord, he says, Hebrews 12 is going to shake the heavens and the earth, but you are a part of the thing that will not be shaken even when he shakes it. That's how close he has you forever. Forever. God has me. He's not letting go. He's my refuge. Verse 9. 
Therefore, because of that, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices and my body rests securely. It's the outcome of worshiping the one true God. Not anxiety, stress, anger, but gladness, joy. My body resting securely. I mean, like, survey of the room. How many of us just need to rest? Just need our bodies to rest. For some of you, you're tired. You're, you're worn out physically. You're worn out down in your soul. Your body has kept the score because it does. And in fact, maybe one of the applications of the way you need to read Psalm 16 and reflect on it and go home, your soul work for this week, is that you need to sleep eight hours every night. As crazy as that might seem to some of you. If that sounds crazy, you're the one that needs it, all right? If that sounds like that's not enough, that's a whole different thing, all right? But if that sounds crazy, like no way I have time for that, you're the one who needs to trust the Lord. For some of you, it's Sabbath. I mean, you need to take a day and you need to rest and enjoy the good gifts God has given you and trust that he has you. You can trust him. You can rest securely. It leads me right to the last, more promises, verses 10 and 11. You will not abandon me to Sheol. You'll not allow your faithful one to see decay. We're actually going to finish with that one because it's so awesome. It's about Jesus. All right, verse 11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand, eternal pleasures. Verse 11 is this beautiful culmination of the truth that when I choose to direct my worship to God. Worship, love, trust, obedience. When I believe the gospel, receive God's forgiveness of my sin, I believe he rose for me. I stand in his presence, and there I find life, joy, and pleasure. That's what we're after. That's what we are after in this world. And he gives it. Now, here's the deeper beauty of the psalm. It's from verse 10. And I'm going to show you how to respond to it. There's this reality about the Old Testament. I've told you, you can meet God here. You can see his character here. But you are not the main character of the Old Testament. Jesus is the main character of the Old Testament. And he's the main character of Psalm 16. Let me show you. I'm going to jump over to Acts chapter 2 to close this thing down and show you Jesus and how Peter talks about him. Peter says in this awesome sermon in Acts 2, starting in verse 25, for David says of him, Jesus, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. See who he's, he's quoting it, right? Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. He's just quoting Psalm 16. You've revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Then Peter interprets Psalm 16 for us, all right? Brothers and sisters, listen to Peter's sermon to you. I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. All right, so unless you think that that was first and foremost that Psalm 16 was about you, it was not. It was not about David. Seeing what was to come, he was speaking concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, he, did, he was not abandoned in Hades. His flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we're all witnesses of this. Down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. 
There is one true God. His name is Jesus. All other gods are counterfeit gods. They've fought for your love. They've fought for your trust. They have fought for your obedience. They promise security. They deliver anxiety. They promise control. They deliver chaos. They promise prosperity. They deliver destruction. They consume you, and they leave you wrung out like a wet rag, angry, frustrated, scared. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. God lifted him out of the grave. And right there is a question for us. Did he really? Did he really rise from the grave? According to Paul, there are 500 eyewitnesses, multiple gospel accounts written independently of each other, all the proof you need. But if he rose, he is God and there is no others. And the people around Peter, when they heard this, Acts 2.37, they were pierced to the heart and said, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, Psalm 16 is a call to turn from counterfeit gods. And when you come to God, the most incredible thing, you're not going to find judgment. No, your sentence was already put on Christ. So you find a father with open arms saying, come home. Repent, come home. Repent, come home. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Come home. In fact, that's where I want to end this today. Let me pray over you and give you a chance to respond to the Lord. Would you bow in prayer? I know I do this often. I want to give you the chance to respond to God. And if you're a Christian, oh, come home. Come back home. Whatever idol that is, whatever that thing that is fought for your affection, would you lay it down? Confess it to God. This is between you and him. You talk to him. You respond to God. What have you been trusting? What have you been loving? You've been needing more than God, more than Christ. What's been taking your attention? Just lay it down to him now. Get that image from Acts 16 or Luke 16 of, of the father opening the arms to the prodigal son, opening the arms to the older son as well. Say, God, I repent. I'm coming back to you. I believe that there is fullness of joy in your presence. And if you're not a Christian, would you receive his forgiveness today? Don't wait. You can have that joy, that peace that passes understanding, that presence of God with you every moment now and every moment for eternity. That comes only through Christ. Believing what he did for you on the cross. So you tell him, God, I, I believe I need that. What must I do to be saved? And you tell him, God, I repent of my sin. I'm turning back to you. I believe you died for me. I receive your forgiveness. So thank you, God. Thank you for saving me. God, I praise you for the work you are doing among us. In your grace and your kindness, you've opened up your, opened up your, your mouth and you've spoken. You've given us your word. 
<laughs> and we get to see more of who you are. We get to be drawn back to you. So would Psalm 16 be true of us? Oh, God, would we see you? And in learning about you, would it draw us into you? Would we know you more? That's what we want. We love you. We thank you for the hope of Christ. It's in his name we pray.